The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Happy New Year to you, everybody. We're still saying that. I'm Gary Mance, delighted to have you with us. And we are live on 1150 KKNW Seattle, after which we get converted magically into a podcast available worldwide. Today, we're going to be talking to the barn find hunter himself. He's back again, Tom Cotter. We're delighted to have him with us. Tom Cotter is known internationally as the barn find hunter, and his YouTube videos alone have amassed a devoted car cult following. Tom is originally from Long Island, New York, and now lives in North Carolina, his home base, but also a starting point whenever his love for the classic car urges him on to new adventures across Route 66, Cuba, and Detroit, just to name a diverse few. A car enthusiast from the very start, his personal investment in several facets of the classic car world, including building one of the most successful motorsport PR companies in the industry, has made Tom Cotter a really kind of a um, household name. I think that's fair to say. Among car cultists, you bet. In the world of classic car media, plumbing the depths of the hobby, specifically the barn find. It's a phenomenon as Tom continues exploring the country with his singular passion. And so we welcome once again to Trip Talk, Tom Cotter. Tom, how are you today? Man, I'd like to meet that guy. I'm... Doesn't he, he sound fascinating? <laughs> you know, if, if, if I didn't know it was me, I'd say, wow, I'd like to meet that guy. You know, the, life is good. Uh, the road is calling. Uh, and I just did a, I, I drove a 62 Corvette the other day for a, uh, a road test. And I, I wrote a story for a magazine, and I said, does anybody know the way to San Jose? Because I feel a road trip calling. So. I love that. And you take many, many road trips during uh, and probably beyond, but also especially for your Barn Find Hunter series, which is remarkable to watch. I learn more in 20 to 30 minutes than I knew in 20 to 30 years by listening to you and watching your adventures, Tom. And I'd like to get into some of that today. But, you know, Tom, I wanted to ask you, because I didn't get into it much when we spoke previously, and I'd like to give you the opportunity now. I am so envious of your track record for building a successful motorsport PR company. I mean, that's the kind of thing that is the dream of car enthusiasts. If they had the skill, if they had the money, if they had the entrepreneurial spirit, which you certainly do in full measure. Tell us, Tom, about how you built your name in the motorsport PR world? Well, I, I'm a, I'm kind of a one-trick pony, and so there's not a lot that distracts me. Uh, I I don't play golf. I've never played golf. I don't fish. I don't hunt. Uh, you know, I'm a, I I only am into cars, and so I I kind of put my sights uh, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, on getting into the racing business, which is hard for a guy from Long Island because, you know, Long Island it used to be the racing capital of the whole country, believe it or not. But when I grew up, it was Iceland Speedway and Riverhead Raceway and Bridgeship. That was it. And not a lot of racing industry. So I realized I had to move. So I moved to Charlotte, which at the time was kind of the, the epicenter for NASCAR, but uh, it has grown into an epicenter for racing, period. 
car, uh, companies moved from Indianapolis and, and L.A. here, and now there are Trans Am teams and drag racing teams. Roger Penske has his IndyCar teams. You know, there's so much that goes on here. So I, I just happened to luck into a place at the right time that kind of grew along with me, and I was able to be a, a big fish in a small pond. Well, I think that's the kind of thing that uh, or the stuff dreams are made of. There's no doubt about that. And having that singular passion is the key. The most successful people I know, Tom, are those. And, and I've got a brother-in-law who is a PGA teaching professional. You talk golf, he's into it there. And he actually has a sort of prism through which he looks to see life in these athletic terms with golf in mind. So I do get why a guy like you, with your passion for cars, would become the barn find hunter and to provide people with entertainment that I can tell just going on YouTube is much sought after. People can't wait for the next episode. And you've got now over 60 that I know of because I keep 70, going through 70, them. Uh, let me see. So next, next Wednesday will be the 72nd, I think. 70, the 70, yeah. 72nd episode. I watched one of them this morning with my breakfast coffee. And <laughs> I wanted to ask... <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that, Tom, and then I think we'll wander far afield, not unlike a barn hunt there. But when we when we think about connecting with people who can turn us on to these cars, you said something very telling and you said it with emphasis, with some enthusiasm. And I thought I have to ask Tom about that today. You were driving out of Ojai on your way to visit a barn. You were definitely on the trek, barn find hunting. And it was nearby Ojai, like the next time, uh, next town over, Ojai, California. You met a gentleman in Ojai named Shelby, and he told yep. you about Dwayne. And what you said in this episode really meant something to me. You said you couldn't emphasize it strongly enough that when you go on the barn finds, the idea is that you're not necessarily going to read about it in a magazine or a newspaper. You find out what's available by talking to their friends and neighbors in the locale. That, that's absolutely it. I will go into a market such as Ojai or uh, Midland, Texas or Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, I, I was a salesman at one point in my life selling <laughs> for five years. I was out of the car business sold furniture but then i got then i sold cars you have to sell yourself before you can either sell something to somebody or buy something from somebody you have to you have to you have to, it can't just be hardware it's got it's got to be software it's got to be human to human and so i think um what, what i think what comes natural to me is is kind of to become friends with somebody and, and i strongly believe that car people are all friends that maybe some just haven't met yet. I, I have never seen a fraternity in any other community outside of cars where I can go up to a stranger and find out he's a car guy or he'll find out my car guy. And 15 minutes later, I'm driving over his house and, you know, look at the stuff I've got in my building. It's, 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 it has to, you have to approach it on a, on a human level. It can't just be how much you want for that. Uh, because that makes it into this mathematical equation, uh, and it, it becomes, you know, cutthroat, buy low, sell high. I don't want to get into that. So I find cars and move on. I don't want to buy them. I just want to find them, meet the owner, hear the story, and move on. 
Now, Tom, that is very interesting to me. And thank you because you just triggered a thought. I need to ask you about this. I was astonished. I watched one of your episodes last night, as I say again this morning. I am fascinated by the kind of people, and they seem to be all over the country, who spend a lot of money or what at the time was a lot of money, and then they wait for these cars to appreciate even as they age. And when they reach a certain vintage, and if they are of a sufficiently good condition, it's amazing to me how people are sitting on gold mines in their garages and the gold is collecting dust. I admit that I don't understand that. Well, you know, if, if a car, I mean, it all comes down to it, you should not buy a car that you hope appreciates. You should buy a car from your heart. Buy a car that you love. Buy a car that you wish you had in high school. Uh, and 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 if you're lucky, it may be a car that appreciates. But you, the 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 value will be to you personally that you own a car that you always wanted, and now, you know, 40 years after high school, you can start enjoying it. Um, and if it might go up in value, the the thing that really hits me so hard is when somebody has a car and it's left out in the driveway, and the wheels go flat and it sinks into the ground, and the person still thinks that after sitting there 25 years, it's worth a lot of money. And, I, you know, maybe it was when you parked it there, but now it's got so much cancer, so much rust, it would require so much um, fabrication to bring that car into some kind of shape that, no, it's not worth a lot of money. Uh, not at all. It, it does not have good bones. So cars that are parked outdoors, unless it's in a dry climate like Nevada or Utah, uh, lose their good bones. And, and they really start deteriorating. Now, things like upholstery that breaks down, that's okay. Paint jobs that, you know, that, that turn flat or get thin, that's okay. But, but it's when the metal structure starts breaking down that that really hurts me, that that car was good 25 years ago, and they refused to sell, and now it's worth nothing. Ah, it just turns my stomach. I can see where it would. The engine, the transmission... The uh, the carburetor, the radiator, when these things go, now you're talking about a massive project to restore, if in fact you do. And that leads me to my next question, Tom. As best you can describe it, what is the psychology that you have encountered during the filming of not only your personal tours, but also in the Barn Find Hunter series? What psychology grips people, most of the time men, not 100%, but a lot of guys out there, get their baby. Oh, I've got that 57 Tiber. Oh, I've got the 62 Corvette, whatever it might be. And it is the apple of their eye. And then they park it and they year after year, even decades later, they haven't done anything with it. Is it just the feeling of having it? Because I don't for the life of me understand why once you have that kind of a jewel in your possession that you wouldn't polish it up and show it off. Yeah, I think you know, I've met so many, so many people. I mean, I, literally, I've been doing this. The first barn find car that I found and bought, I was 14 years old. And it was a 1944 convertible that Lumpy on Leave it to Beaver drove one like it. And that's why I bought it. Um, but I, 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 I think there's a lot of characters out there that were possibly misfits in high school. Didn't, you know, didn't get the date, didn't get the prom queen, but they had a car. And, you know, it, it was not a shiny car they wanted. They wanted a fast car. They wanted, you know, something that would burn rubber in the streets. And they have that car. It's, 
being shiny to them doesn't make any difference. I have it in my garage. That's one person. Another person might have a very boring life, but as long as that car is in their carport and people come by every week and knock on the door, would you sell that car? It keeps that person interested. And if they were to sell that car, nobody would come and knock on the door anymore. And I, I see those people all the time, that that car connects them with the rest of the society. Uh, so, it's, you know, I, I guess I should get a, a psychologist to, you know, come up with some kind of uh, theorem on, on, on what makes people cars. I mean, you know, <laughs> beyond hoarding. I mean, hoarding would be lots and lots of cars. Uh, but what if you only have one or two? I'm not sure that's hoarding. It's selfish or, yeah, I don't know. I mean, who am I to say what you should do with what, something you own? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Right. You just kind of ponder it and wonder, well, why didn't they do more with it? I'll give you another example. This was from one of the videos I watched in the last 24 hours. You went to North Carolina and a gentleman and his wife conducted a tour and his wife kind of took over in the middle of it on her birthday. And you're walking through this sizable barn or garage and you're seeing these magnificent automobiles, some of them you hadn't seen in quite a while, if ever. And you look at those and as you're ticking off the valuation of them, which is something we can get into in a minute, when you look at that, there, I was trying to tote it up in my head. It seemed like this gentleman and his wife in North Carolina had a collection, the value of which would surpass a million dollars, and most of that stuff is just sitting there. Yep, yep. And you you remembered it was her birthday. Do you remember what I what I brought for her when I got in the door? I don't. I brought, I brought a bouquet of flowers. Her husband told me, oh, boy, that Wednesday's not a good day. It's my wife's birthday. And then I heard her in the background, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, he can come, he can come. So he said, okay, my wife just said you can come, so I'll see you on Wednesday. Well, I went to the store before I went to their house and, and bought a bouquet of flowers, and I walked in the door, and I said, you know, here you go, happy birthday. I mean, it's just a way to kind of sell yourself. You know, she got a laugh out of it, her husband got a laugh out of it, and it kind of broke the ice from this stranger who was going to uh, walk through some of their most prized possessions in the world, suddenly he's a friend of yours. He brought me flowers. We had a laugh. So, uh, but yeah, that that is the barn find collection of my life. Uh, that person lives on the end of a dirt road, and he bought these cars back in the 70s mostly. They were very cheap. They were like Plymouth Superbirds and Dodge Daytonas with the wings and the big pointy noses and, you know, hemi-powered distance. 427 powered that and Chevy Nomads. I mean, well over 100 cars, and he restored them. New mechanicals, new interior, new paint, new tires, and then he put them in buildings. And now those buildings are falling down around the cars. And so these these cars that were once brought back to life now are starting to deteriorate again. And you know, but what can you do? You can't. He has two daughters. They're not interested in the cars. So someday, you know, his wife's going to be have have a uh, a decision to make. Well, what do I do with these cars there? He's no longer around. What, you know, maybe an auction or something. But it's allow people allowing you into their lives. You can't do that with a, a financial transaction of how much do you want. You know, it's got to be something deeper than that. Which is why I don't like to go to junkyards. Junkyards may have hundreds or even thousands of cars, some of which may be interesting to look at, but those cars can't tell a story. You can't go to the junkyard owner and ask 
tell me the story about that 55 Chevy, because it's just inventory. It would be very rare for that guy to know that story. But if you can find that 55 Chevy in, a, in somebody's garage and say, you know, my aunt bought that new, and when I graduated high school, she gave it to me, and I drove it off, you know, until I got married. That's the. It's all about human interest stories, and the cars are just catalysts to carry that story along. Yes, that is exactly the feeling I get from watching episodes of Barn Find Hunter. And there is a distinction to be drawn, Tom, because it's one thing to have a large garage or a big old barn and to have cars that are in some cases quite valuable, quite rare. A very different experience from going out to the junkyard because really you might as well say boneyard. Whatever inventory you're looking at in a junkyard represents somebody's rejection of what was once precious to someone else. Right, 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 right. Yep. And so, and in particular, I wanted to mention this one car. Oh man, if I won the lottery, there was one that you pointed out and you spent some time admiring this particular car. It was a Corvette and it was metallic blue and it was the bomb. It had every luxury you could put into one. And I guess you could have a more powerful engine, but then you wouldn't have air conditioning, power this, power that. It was an extraordinary car. And I remember you saying during this episode that this would have been the car possessed by someone of means who could have it because they could afford the luxury of owning it. Yep. You, you want to meet the person who bought these cars. In some cases, I have who bought them new. But you, you think of that person as a young person sitting in the car dealership checking off options. And, you know, maybe they wanted the biggest 427 inch with the tri-power. But if you got the biggest one, as you say, you couldn't get the air conditioning. So you get one level down. So it's 430 horsepower instead of 475 or something. Um, uh, so, but you want to be that, you know, I, I once met a guy who had a Buick Stage 3, I'm sorry, Pontiac Stage 3 convertible GTO, every, every, every option. And, and this guy, he said, you know, I never met the owner. But this car had every single option, every light in the trunk and light under the hood and, you know, a CD player and AMF. He said, it must, he said, I have a feeling it was a mafia person because money was no object. And they just checked and checked and checked and checked all the way down the list. And that's the car that he wound up getting. He said, it, it must have been a person with lots of money. But now, you know, that was then. Now, you look at these options, like light in the trunk and light under the hood is like a $5 option. But they, they checked. There was nothing they didn't check off on that car. You'd really like to meet the person. What were you thinking when you bought that car? Another <laughs> thing I really love is meeting people that still own the car they bought new. And, you know, why is it you held on to this car for 50 years? Why is it that the car you got when you graduated high school or college or whatever, you, you decided that was the car you're going to keep your whole life? You know, and, and I've actually thought about doing a book about one-owner cars and, and – you know, have pictures and stories about this car that they took it to the prom and they took it on their first vacation when they got married, honeymoon, and all that stuff. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to write a book about that and show people in photographs, you know, aging along with the car until the present day. So I may do that one day. <laughs> that would be a terrific book. And you've written a number of them, to be sure. One of the ones that intrigues me the most, Tom, because I just have this feeling of nostalgia for Route 66. But you wrote a book about Route 66 barn finds. And I'd just like to know, 
We've got a few minutes left. Which particular barn finds were most impressive to you along this stretch of America, where in some cases the weather might get more readily inclement? You have to watch that as far as the weatherization is concerned. Whereas elsewhere, it is dry, maybe in some place like Texas or New Mexico. And when you go through there, you see cars that have been preserved maybe better than you would have expected had those cars been anyplace else. Right. Well, the, the trip, as you know, Route 66 starts in Chicago and goes to L.A. So we literally started on the shore of the lake in in, uh, in Chicago. And the cars we found early on on our trip were interesting but rusty. No surprise, no humidity, lots of rain, muddy soil that contained moisture. But the further south we got and the further west we got, the cars got in better and better shape. And so really the car that I really liked the most was in Western, I think it was a Temecula, California, kind of a desert type of very dry area in Western California as we were heading towards uh, Santa Monica. And uh, it was a Nash, an old Nash, something like Jimmy Olsen would have driven in Superman, (laughs) but the bigger version of it, not the small one, but the bigger one. And, you know, it's it's like Art Deco, and it looks like a bathtub turned upside down on wheels. It's it was such a cool car, it, and it, it had kind of a slight, a slight bit of surface crust all over the body, but it was sound, and you could have sanded that off and painted it. And I, I asked the guy, you know, I would like to buy this car. He said, well, sorry, it's not for sale. All right, well, I tried. But, you know, my message to people is if you live up north and you can buy a car up there and spend a lot of money fixing up the bones, don't do it. Get in a car, get in a plane, and drive to the southwest and buy a car with good bones. And then bring that car back up north, and you'll have forever a better car than you could ever build uh, instead of buying one that was rusty. And particularly so, I would guess, if you can park that, uh, the bones that you refurbish, that you polish up, it's better if there's some place where the weather doesn't get in so harshly. Because I would hate to be just myself if I had money to spend on one of these gems from yesteryear. I would sure hate to put a lot of money and work into it only to see it rusted out a few years later because of the weather. You have to be careful where you're storing these things. Yeah. You know, I have a a garage and I have it heated and cooled so that cars can be kind of in a climate controlled environment. Because exactly like you say, that, that you can fix up a car and then it'll start deteriorating. Uh, prematurely, yeah. And, you know, that's like that guy in North Carolina mentioned. He had cars. When I went there in the spring, it was warm outside, but it was still cool in the buildings, and these cars had sweat all over them. I said, boy, they're going to start rusting again. And it breaks your heart because you know what it was and what it could be, and yet the weather is having its way. It would be difficult. I, I wanted to ask you about an upcoming project, Tom, but very quickly, when you look at the valuation of cars, who is it just is it popular sentiment? Is there some objective standard by which you can decide that something is in average condition, good, excellent? And then there's one above that, and I don't even know how you would reach concourse. Yeah, concourse is the top stage. of the line. Yeah. That it's, kind uh, of valuation well, is exciting to think about. Well, you you know, anybody with a, with an iPhone or a cell phone can or a laptop can go on Haggerty dot com and go up to the car valuation section it explains what the, the categories are four three two one and concourse and 
all the cars are expected to run. So even though it's a number four, it's expected to be a running car, but it might have, you know, some rust on the fenders or torn seats or whatever, but it runs. So that would be a, a four. And then as you step up higher and higher, it explains the minor differences. And a, and a number one car is a real good car that you could bring to a local car show and, uh, and it would, it would attract a lot of attention and maybe win a prize. Then above the number one is Concours, which is the best car that you could bring to a Concours de Elegance, and, and people would, you know, goo over it and drool, and maybe you'd win a prize as well. So uh, I'd go to Haggerty.com, and, and they have it all figured out for you. Because they're an insurance company, they have to constantly stay up on the value of cars in case they're insured people have a theft or a collision, they have to know exactly how much those cars are worth every day. And that said, you're a man on the move all the time, Tom Cotter. Tell us what you have coming up. Are you going over to do some shows in the UK? Wow, how did you know? Uh, yes, I'm flying to uh, Paris to go to a big car show over there called Retromobile in February, and then I'm going to fly back to London right after Paris, and uh, and my film crew will meet you there, and we're going to spend a week looking for cars in the UK. And I'm, you know, I don't know. It's uh, people say I'm talking to people over there. They're very rusty because UK is, has a moist environment, uh, but you might be able to find some in buildings that are nice or better. Uh, so I'm just going to do like I do here. I'm going to I'm not going to bring my Woody on this trip. It would be expensive, but uh, the Haggerty has made arrangements. <laughs> For me to borrow a minister's Morris Minor with right-hand drive that I can drive on the right side of the road. And oh so I'm you know, driving a quirky car, pulling into somebody's driveway with a quirky car allows you to begin a conversation. And uh, so we'll see if it works on the other side of the pond. <laughs> and, and on the other side of the other side of the pond, we'll have you on again, Tom Cotter. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Gary. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. And I tell everyone, go to Barn Find Hunter. Look it up on YouTube. You're in for a treat. And as far as a treat goes, you can go to Facebook and learn more about American Road Magazine. That's the name of the page. You can like us on Facebook at American Road Magazine. Thanks for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk. Along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine, we remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue of American Road Magazine. Until next week, drive safely, everybody, and dream well.